This is Daniel King, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Wellness. Hey, this is George Fox Talks. I'm so excited to welcome my guest today, Dr. David Hanscomb. He is an orthopedic spine surgeon who are ne- who's now treating patients with non-surgical intervention. He is uh, an author of two books, as well as being sought out as a speaker in many, many conferences. I actually had the privilege of speaking with him at Oregon Health Science University's Pain Summit a few years ago. And he made such a great impression on me um, to meet um, such a, um, a person who was obviously um, a fantastic surgeon, helping so many people, but also trying to reconsider, reconsider what it looks like about pain. And that's what the summit was really about, was about pain. And so I'm just going to get right into it. Um, I just wanted to ask David, why do you think so many people have low back pain? Well, I think it's really critical to differentiate acute back pain from chronic back pain. Mm. And so acute back pain is common because we treat our backs badly. I've had a back surgery myself, a post-operative infection. I did heavy construction work for many years. And people kept saying, take care of your back, take care of your back. And I'm going, I'm 20 years old. I don't need to take care of my back. Well, we tend to abuse our backs until we realize it's otherwise. So repetitive and bending repetitive bending and twisting, you know, breaks down your spine. Mm-hmm. There's big muscles, there's lots of spasm, and it hurts. So acute back pain is very anxiety-producing, which brings us to chronic back pain, which is a completely different animal. Mm. So just to be really clear, chronic pain in any part of the body is the same thing, and we'll explain that later. So what happens with chronic pain, doesn't matter whether it's your feet, headaches, stomach pain, irritable bowel syndrome, whatever it is, We do know between six to 12 months, based on MRI scan research, that the pain goes from the pain centers to the emotional centers Mm -hmm. every time the pain becomes chronic. Mm -hmm. So the definition of chronic pain is an embedded memory that becomes connected with more and more life events, and the memory cannot be erased. So chronic pain in any body part, including back pain and neck pain, is a memorized neurological disorder. It's a neurological disorder. It is not a structural problem. So acute back pain heals in about six to 12 weeks. It is miserable. I've been through many phases of that. Mm. But when you develop that anxiety and reaction to it, the brain starts locking onto it. Mm. So we were taught in medical school, maybe 10% of people go into chronic back pain. The data actually shows that almost half of people go into chronic back pain. Mm. So it's, it's, so it's an incredibly common injury. It creates a lot of anxiety with the acute phase. Then we find out it starts becoming memorized by the brain, mm. and it's a huge problem. So let me can I give you a couple of examples of how chronic back pain starts. Yeah, it's super fascinating, actually. Absolutely. So this is what blew me away. So I'm one of the few surgeons that's been on both sides of this fence. Mm. So I spent my first eight years of practice doing back fusions for back pain. Mm. I came out of my fellowship. Seattle at the time is doing nine times the rate of spine surgery for back pain as any place else in the entire country. Hmm. Nine times. I was part of that. Wow. So I'd spend my day in clinic. Then I would go to the operating room in the evening and do a spine fusion. Hmm. 
And so I thought it was like a 90% success rate because it's, it's a pretty big operation. Mm-hmm. The success rate, just guess what the success rate is of a spine fusion for back pain. You you may know this already. Yeah, I'm just going to make a wild guess, even if I may know it. Uh, 50, 50, 50%. Okay, so I'll ask the question, how, what success rate would you want? Let's say you had back pain for a year. Yeah. You're getting really tired of it. Yep. You came to the surgeon, you came to me and said, well, what percent success would you want to undergo a back fusion for back pain? Well, I'm a pretty pra- pragmatic guy. I would say maybe 80% chance of success. Okay. So what if I said fifty percent? I would I would think maybe if there's an alternative conservative way, maybe that would be better. Fifty percent, you know, maybe. Well, well, let me just give you the craziness of our world right now. So there's success rates between twenty two to twenty five percent. Wow. So that's part of it. Second thing is we are operating on normally aging spines. Hmm. It's been documented in paper after paper, as you know, mm-hmm. that disc degeneration is a normal finding. Mm-hmm. It's a normal. So it should not be called degenerative disc disease. It's basically a normally aging spine. So we're doing these big operations on normally aging spines. Then with a spine fusion, we're actually, we've actually damaged your spine, hmm. right? Yep. We put this big mass of scar tissue, rods, bone, and middle part of a beautifully beautiful spine. Even if it's stiffer as you get older, just because a disc is degenerated, well, that just means a degenerated disc it has nothing to do with pain. Wow. So it turns out that the pain is actually in the muscles, tendons, and ligaments around the spine. Mm-hmm. That's how it starts. Mm-hmm. Then the brain memorizes it. Mm-hmm. And doing so we're doing surgery on something that's in the brain, not in the back. Wow. That's a problem. So, okay. So the, but, but the problem is that we're actually, and I actually quit my spine surgical practice because I was just seeing three to five patients a week. Mm-hmm. I would say being badly damaged mm-hmm. by surgery on normally aging spines. Mm-hmm. Now, watching hundreds and hundreds of patients mm-hmm. resolve their chronic pain by understanding the nature of chronic pain. Wow. It's not very hard to solve. Right, right, right. So, so I have a question then. So why do you think we're so hyper-focused then on biological um, disease processes like what you say, like the wrinkle in our in our spine, right? Like a disc herniation, I mean, like degenerative disc disease or disc herniation. Why do you think our society, Dr. Hanscom, is like so focused on that? Well, I think it's human nature. I think people just want concrete answers. Hmm. People like black and white answers. They want things fixed. People t- definitely tolerate, um, people don't tolerate uncertainty. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. So, okay, so if I can fix it, I'm going to fix it. People, so people say, well, people want a quick fix. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Hmm. Everybody wants a quick fix. Mm-hmm. So it's human nature to want something to be fixed quickly. And if it works, mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. So if I can get a quick fix versus going through a process, I'm going to mm-hmm. do the quick fix. Yeah. So people say, well, people want to accuse medicine of wanting to make money and profit, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the pressure comes from the patients for us to fix them. Yeah. We feel the pressure. Surgeons do make money from doing aggressive spine surgery, but that's what we're taught to do. Right. So I'm not going to throw my colleagues under the bus because I was in that same bus. Mm-hmm. When I did see the data in 1993 about this 22% success rate, I did stop but at the same time, I developed severe chronic pain myself for another 13 years. Mm, mm. So at the same time, I stopped doing surgery for back pain. I didn't know what to do. Yeah, I, I'm not going to do that operation because I was having troubles getting people better also. Mm. So I developed 17 mental and physical symptoms of chronic pain Wow! at the same time. Yeah, And looking backwards, it had actually started many, many years ago. 
So I'm going to work backwards mm-hmm. and point out that I have been symptom-free. I don't have symptoms anymore. Hmm. That's 17 solid symptoms. And these were not subtle symptoms. Wow. So I had migraine headaches that were extreme, mm-hmm. bad migraines. Hmm. I had ringing in my ears, yeah. tinnitus, burning sensations in my feet that were extreme. Hmm. I had stomach issues. I had neck pain, back pain. I also developed severe obsessive thought patterns or basically a silent OCD. Mm-hmm. I developed anxiety, depression, and those turn out to be actually inflammatory disorders. Mm-hmm. So I had 17 different physical and mental symptoms simultaneously. Nobody. Yeah. And, I, and I'm a physician. I had lots of access to lots of resources. Absolutely. I read self-help Absolutely. books. Absolutely. I went to seminars. I talked to doctors. Yeah. Nobody could tell me what happened to me. Wow. So I came out of it by accident mm-hmm. in 2003. Okay. It's a different story. Yeah. And since 2003, I have been symptom-free. Wow. All 17 symptoms are gone. So I still didn't know what happened. So I started just doing my practice, mm-hmm. doing my thing. And I sort of thought that the rehab world would help me out with this. Mm-hmm. You know, it was about taking care of my patients. I realized that that was not happening. Mm-hmm. So then I started to actually take the principles that I'd learned and put them into practice. But I didn't know why. Then in 2000. Nine, Dr. Howard Schubner, who wrote a book called Unlearn Your Pain, gave a lecture at a pain conference I put, put, put on. Okay. So the title of the conference was um, A Course in Compassion, Empathy in the Face of Chronic Pain. Hmm. So Howard was my keynote speaker, and he started listing off 32 different symptoms of chronic pain. Mm-hmm. My wife went up to him and goes, you know, I have this friend of mine who has this, 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 and this, 17 of these symptoms. <laughs> and he looks at her and goes, you mean your husband? <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew it. Yeah. Right? Right. So anyway, from that point on, things started to come together. And then the last five years of neuroscience research have made it incredibly clear, as you know, right. the nature of chronic pain. Once you understand the problem, yeah. there's plenty of solutions. Yeah. And surgery, by the way, is not one of them. Yeah, I mean, I think you you made that contrast or you explained that really well in the beginning when you said that it seems like it's a nervous system issue more than it might be a, a you know, a, a spine issue. I mean, and there are spine issues, right? I mean, you and I have both agreed to that. I mean, I'm a physical therapist and you know, and so we both agree that to that. There is times where it is a pathoanatomical issue, but it may not be as as common as we think it is. And we've, and there's research to show that very strong research as well as clinical practice. And so if we're saying that spine problems or pain in general is more of a nervous system issue, can you explain maybe more of that? And I think you touched on anxiety as well too, and maybe you can help, um, help the audience kind of think about that. Okay, so I'm going to ask your help here for a second. Sure, of course. <laughs> so I can go on to a three-hour lecture really quickly without <laughs> stopping on this. So I'm going to try to both could, right? break, I'm going to take this down, try to try to keep this broken down into parts. All right. So let me put a process out there called dynamic healing. Okay. Okay. Every living creature has three parts of surviving. One of them is sensory input. Okay. In other words, what's your environment telling you about what's safe versus not safe? Mm-hmm. So you have threats versus safety. Right. So you, people call it stress. You call it threat. Whatever you want to call it, you still have obstacles every day to stay alive. Mm. I need oxygen to stay alive. So my body goes to places where there's oxygen. Mm. I'm not going to lock myself in the trunk of a car. So your body is on autopilot every second to take information from your environment to stay alive. So that's the input. Okay. Then you have your nervous system takes all the sensory input from every receptor. Yeah. 
and it processes it, processes it. You know, it's called the central nervous system for a reason, but it also is comprised of the midbrain, yep. the spinal cord, right. the peripheral nerves, and the autonomic nervous system. Right. So your nervous system taking all this data and saying, okay, what do I do next? So what happens is that you have your nervous system itself that's now processing this data. And then the bottom line is your brain sends out signals to your body hmm. to say, okay, it's safe and you can relax and yep. regenerate. Yep. Or there's a threat and you secrete adrenaline and cortisol and inflammatory proteins called cytokines. So your body goes into fight or flight yeah. when there's any perceived threat. Yep. So that's the output. So as far as how creatures survive, you have the input, the nervous system, and the output. Yep. The essence of all chronic disease, both mental and physical, is that you need fight or flight mm-hmm. in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Without it, you would not survive. But the sensation generated by this body's physiology mm. in fight or flight is called anxiety. Mm-hmm. That's right. So it's a sensation. Mm. If you're lying on the beach in the sun on vacation without a care in the world, <laughs> what word would you use to describe that? Relaxation. Right. So you relax. So if your boss is yelling at you and you're feeling whatever, yep. and your body's full of these stress chemicals, what word would you use to describe that? Irritated, anxious. You know. Anxious, right. Yeah. So anxiety is a description of the sensations generated when you're in a survival mode. Hmm. So can you explain then to uh, like, I mean, I love that personally, but I mean, we're spine, you're a spine surgeon and I'm a physical therapist. I mean, how does, isn't that more of a psychological issue or isn't that more of a social issue when people say that? What do you, what do you say to that? Absolutely not. Hmm. Anxiety is not a psychological issue. It's just a sensation that, okay, my cat has the same process, right? Mm. A dog threatens her, she goes crazy. She sees another cat, she's not very nice to her. So her hair stands up, she yells, she screams. And so she is in a fight or flight state. Mm. So humans have the same reaction, but we have that word called anxiety. It's just a word. Right. So again, every living creature has that reaction. So Again, the words we use to describe that are irritated. When there's a word play. Yeah. Yep. So, but let me just say one really quick thing here that's really, really critical. Yep. Okay. This unconscious, I'm sorry, the survivor response, yep. anxiety and anger yep. are automatic. Okay. They're programmed in every living creature, including us. Yep. So there's nothing you can do to control it. Yeah. Because the unconscious brain processes about 20 million bits of information per second. Hmm. The conscious brain processes 40, not 40 million, 40. Wow. 20 million versus 40. So we have some comfortable survival sensation, which, by the way, is a gift. Yeah, absolutely. If we didn't have, that's how we evolved. Yep. The species of creatures who didn't pay attention to the sensations just didn't survive. Yeah, yep. So anxiety is a gift. Mm. So remember, the antidote to anxiety is control. When you lose control, your body kicks in more stress chemicals, you become angry. Mm Mm-hmm. Anger and anxiety are the same thing. Mm, interesting. So then what happens is that you have a physiological response. You take action to solve the problem. Your neurochemistry drops down mm. and your anxiety disappears. But when it's sustained, what happens when your anxiety is sustained, mm-hmm. your body starts to break down. Mm-hmm. So again, it's 20 million versus 40. Mm-hmm. You have this automatic survival reaction that you have no control over. Mm-hmm. The problem is, since it involves your whole body, Mm -hmm. you feel like it's part of your identity. It is not. 
It's an amoral survival response. Mm. It does consume your body, but it's not who you are. Yeah. It's what you have to survive. Mm. So the first thing I tell people to do with anxiety in general is, look, visualize a large thermometer on the opposite wall. Mm-hmm. And there's a word play on, of anxiety of alert, nervous, afraid, angry, paranoid, and terrorized. Mm-hmm. So so humans have a word gradation of it. So visualize how high your anxiety is mm-hmm. and actually try to get people to get rid of the word anxiety. It's just, it's just basically an activated nervous system. Yeah. So your nervous system is activated. How high is it? Right. And then the rhetorical question I ask everybody, which is intentionally not to give the right answer, is that how do you lower anxiety? Mm-hmm. Well, you lower anxiety by lowering the stress chemicals. Yeah. Yep. Now, there's a bunch of ways of doing that, and we'll go back to dynamic healing in a second. Yep. But the essence of solving anxiety is that it's physiological. Yeah. It's your body's neurochemical state. Yep. Then who you are as a person, your conscious brain is over here. Yeah. So the key issue is you separate this reaction from your identity. When your identity gets wrapped up in this really uncomfortable, unpleasant, intentionally unpleasant sensation, yep. it's a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Have you noticed that a lot? Like when people get... Um um, something like back pain that becomes their identity or the chronic pain. I mean, you're going, you're touching such great points, right? Of someone that says, you know what, I'm, I'm osteoarthritis or this is my problem. And that becomes kind of their identity because they start changing the way they do things. Right. And I think that that heightens the, these different, um, just these different points, especially the fight or flight. And we've seen this, what are some of the multimodal approaches that you think because we're definitely not just talking about one way of, of looking at it, right? I mean, we're looking at this dynamic healing process. Some people call it the multimodal approach. Like, what do you think about that? Do you see it as a multimodal approach? And what are some of the things that, that your research and your practice has shown you about uh, you know, the dynamic healing or the multimodal approach of pain? Well, let me just jump back. You said something that's really critical um, about this um, this reaction here. So... You can't control it, mm. and so you're identified with it. And remember, the key word is anxiety. And remember, there's no reward in nature at all for being vulnerable. Yeah, that's true. Okay, but what we have a huge problem here is that this is true for humans. We don't have a reward for being vulnerable, and um, it's the essence of human relationships is being vulnerable. <laughs> But there's a huge fact I need to jump back to before we go on with the conversation is that for humans, we have consciousness. Mm. It's called a predictive model of coding. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that thoughts are as much of a threat as a bully. Mm-hmm. So unpleasant, the research term is called URTs, unpleasant repetitive thoughts. Mm-hmm. So unpleasant thoughts or obsessive thought patterns become their own source of pain. Yeah. So the essence of disease is sustained exposure to fight, fight or flight physiology. Mm-hmm. And what causes that sustained exposure is, first of all, your circumstances can be severe, poverty, no opportunities, Mm. racism, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But also your thoughts, your inability to escape escape your thoughts is the number one factor that keeps your nervous system fired up. Mm. What's even worse is that repressed thoughts Mm -hmm. are even more fired up in the nervous system. Mm. But since you can't escape your thoughts, what do you do? If you repress them, you're screwed. If you experience them, you're screwed. And then these thoughts become memorized in your brain yep. to become obsessive thought patterns. Yeah. I call it phantom brain pain. Yeah. So what happens for most humans, we have some level of a sustained fight or flight. Mm. 
It's the exposure to sustained fight or flight that causes chronic mental and physical disease. Mm. And the essence of the solution is actually changing your physiology from fight or flight to safety. Mm. So let's go back to the dynamic healing model. You have your input, your circumstances, stresses, your nervous system, and you have your physiology. Mm -hmm. In medicine, we're treating just the symptoms. You know, migraine, headache, take a pill. But it's the interaction between your circumstances and your nervous system. In other words, if you have um, a bright light flash, you look away, Mm -hmm. you have what I call a neurophysiological response. Mm -hmm. But if it's more sustained, you start developing symptoms. So when your stresses or circumstances start overwhelming overwhelming your coping capacity, Mm -hmm. you go into fight or flight. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that these physiological changes, fight or flight, translate into the physical symptoms Mm -hmm. and mental symptoms. So it turns out that anxiety, depression, OCD, bipolar, schizophrenia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, cardiac disease, peripheral vascular disease, hypertension, adult diabetes, and obesity are all inflammatory disorders, every one of them. Mm. They're physiological. So what what I forgot in medical school, which I'm now learning through our work group, is that the immune system is part of fight or flight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you have sustained exposure to threat physiology, it means your white blood cells are actually attacking your, your own body. So then you have symptoms, then it's if, if it's even more prolonged and sustained, you start getting diseases. Yeah. So it turns out that cancer, autoimmune disorders, or multiple sclerosis, mm-hmm. um, all these things are actually autoimmune disorders from sustained fight or flight. Mm. So what happens in medicine, we're treating just the symptoms to knock them down, yep. where the real problem is the interaction between the stresses and the, and the, and the nervous system. So dynamic healing, if you come to me with a stomach ache, yep. This is actually written about multiple times, and we do all these tests, and there's, quote, nothing wrong, but you're going home to an abusive relationship, that's a problem, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Because you're going, okay. Yep. So the issue is in medicine right now is that the business of medicine has kidnapped us. Mm. Not the doctors, but we like to talk to our patients. Yeah. And I said this earlier before we started the podcast. I do. That's why I think physical therapists in general – would be one of our last bastions of hope for solving chronic pain. Mm. Because without giving time, they actually find out who our patient is as a person, yeah. what, who are, what are their coping skills, what's their background, yeah. and what are their circumstances, yeah. we're treating only symptoms. Mm. And so it's like trying to put out an oil well fire with a garden hose because the fuel keeps coming up. Yeah. So integrated medicine does a much better job than mainstream medicine. Yeah. Mainstream medicine has no data, by the way. I'm, I use the word no data to do what they do. <laughs> None. So by not allowing us to talk to our patients, limiting, limiting the time with our patients, how do you solve any problem if I don't know what the problem is? Yeah. <clears throat> so let me just give you one example. It's sort of extreme, but it's not atypical. I'll just give you really a tough example. It's a really quick one. Yeah. So one woman come in, middle-aged, who just had total body pain. Mm. Very quiet, very nice. And I, you know, her tests were all basically normal other than disc degeneration. And um, my nurse comes out and she talks to her another 15 minutes. She comes out and says, you're not going to believe this. I go, what are you talking about? She says, well, her daughter's going to have a baby. I go, okay, fine. Mm -hmm. But her husband was the father. Mm -hmm. That's stress. Okay. Okay. Or another gentleman came in 
who mm-hmm. was just same thing, neck pain for years. He was there with his wife and daughter. Mm-hmm. He's about seven years old, and just sort of a sad guy, mm-hmm. super nice guy. Mm-hmm. And I talked to my fellow, and I said, "Look, this isn't does not take very long. Mm-hmm. Just watch what happens here." And I didn't, I did not know what was going to happen. Yeah. And I walked in the room and said, "Look, the body can create symptoms, or the body does create symptoms yeah. when you're under a lot of stress." Yep. And so I said, anything unusual going on in the last year or so before these symptoms started? Mm. So he holds up his hand in the form of a gun and pulls a trigger and just says, my son. And of course, there's lots of suicide, unfortunately, in the chronic pain world. So I go, I'm really sorry. Did your son commit suicide? Yeah. He goes, no, he was murdered. Mm. Then I I didn't know really what to say or do. I said, well, can I ask what happened? It turns out that his paranoid, schizophrenic grandson has shot his father, who is his son. Wow. That's the diagnosis. It's not neck pain. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, again, what dynamic healing says is that we teach people to process the stresses differently. You cannot avoid all of them. Yep. In fact, avoiding stress is its own stress. You can increase the resiliency of the nervous system so it takes more stress to fire off the fight-or-flight response. Mm -hmm. Then there's ways of directly changing the body's physiology from inflammatory to anti-inflammatory. Okay. In other words, you can directly alter your physiology. What you can't do is you can't control your thoughts. Hmm. So there's ways of processing them differently to lower the fight or flight. So again, with dynamic healing, you can address the input, the nervous system, and the output. There's multiple strategies for each level. But here's the deal. This is what's so exciting for me and why I quit my surgical practice. Yeah. <clears throat> so... The sensation generated by fight or flight is anxiety. Mm-hmm. We're trying to treat it psychologically and get say 20 million to 40 mismatch. Yep. You cannot outrun your mind. You cannot outrun your mind. Mm-hmm. So by learning to develop what I call a working relationship, what we call anxiety mm-hmm. and anger, mm-hmm. it's game on. Because yeah. it, it does what it does over here, yep. then you can do what you're doing over here. So what happens, not only do people come out of chronic pain, yep. they thrive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of the things I just want to touch on, so many great points here, is the education piece that we are receiving in academics when we're going to med school and PT school. I'll just talk for myself. I'm in I'm in PT school and I, you know, we talk about chronic pain. But you know, the dynamic healing system and these things weren't really taught when I went to school 20 years ago. It's it's much more um discussed now, maybe not as in depth as you and I would like it to be, but we're getting there, right? What would you say as we we're talking about and I want to say, I don't have a rescue fantasy, Dr. Hanscombe, but I do want to try to unleash or loosen up maybe the strongholds of like the business of medicine or business of physical therapy so that we really can spend time with our patients, right? One of the biggest things we see is this thing called person-centered care or patient-centered care. And I think that that's the right direction. But how do you see, I mean, let's just tackle on education first. Like, what are you hoping for, for other colleagues um, who are learning about pain, who are going into, you know, surgery and these other things? What would you say that you, we would like to see maybe going forward? So you and I are in the same mission. And one reason I think physical therapy is one of the last bastions of hope here is that modern medicine is not buying this. Mm. <clears throat> they just aren't. Mm. And so, I, I mean, I spent 20 years trying to change the system and I had no success. Yeah. The physical therapists have lots of education on pain. Yeah. You're, you guys are at least 20 years, 20 years ahead of physicians on this. Yeah. Integrated medicine actually has a much better start on this because they actually acknowledge a person in their environment. Yeah. 
The thing with physical therapy is you touch your patient, yep. you talk to them, yep. except in businesses where you're not allowed to spend time with your patients. Yeah. So, so my contention is that <clears throat> we learned through what's called the polyvagal theory or the autonomic nervous system about co-regulation. Right. In other words, if I can talk to you in a open tone of voice and can help you feel, help you feel safe, mm-hmm. that's the core of healing. Because mm-hmm. in safe physiology, you're full of oxytocin and dopamine. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, if you go to your doctor or therapist mm-hmm. and you don't get your questions answered, yep. you don't feel heard, you're in fight or flight. Yeah. So my contention is that the business of medicine is actually actively harming us mm-hmm. by not allowing us to feel safe with their doctors. Mm-hmm. So the rest of the interventions that we're doing don't really work very well with that sense of safety because mm-hmm. you're altering the body's chemistry. Mm-hmm. Plus, when doctors don't talk to the patients or dashed hopes, their fight or flight goes up even higher yeah. or... With failed spine surgery that doesn't work, yep. they're pretty angry at their surgeons. Yeah. So they stay fired up in that regard. Yeah, I agree. So as long as a pa- so not allowing us to talk to our patients and spend time with them is actually my mind below the standard of care. Yeah. It's a basic healing modality that's being missed. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that there's some benefits of providers having time to spend talking to each other as well too kind of more like you know kind of the interprofessional or multidisciplinary approach especially with complexity of pain or complexity of the cases i mean kind of talk us about that because i know that a lot of times we've lived in different silos right you send me referral and then i would see the patient and you know and then i would maybe send you a note that maybe looked at but you know i feel like these kinds of conversations are so needed as we're working with the person and trying to understand, um, you may not have as much time um, because of you know whatever responsibilities you have, I may have, but we can have that interaction together. And I feel like that would help heal some of the injury that we're all feeling in our professions. Right, so two things, I would talk to my therapist all the time. Yeah. And they would talk to me, so huge difference. I mean, just a simple three minute phone call makes a huge difference. Yeah. So 100% agree there. Second of all, we do have a work group um, a lot of people show up the first and third Wednesdays of the month. Mm. And it turns out that there's 30 years, maybe 40 years of deep, deep, deep research mm. on the essence of chronic pain. Right. But there's a mitochondria group, there's the genetic code group, yep. there's a clinical group, but nobody talks to each other. Yeah. So we're so excited because with these deep fields of research yeah. are talking to each other and can come up with wonderful clinical protocols so we're pretty excited about, and see, we're not inventing this stuff. Mm-hmm. We're just digging out the data that's already known. Yep. We're bringing it together. We're creating clinical application to it. Yep. But we have all sorts of interested physicians and providers and therapists that are actually now solving chronic pain. So the essence of the deal is mm-hmm. that chronic pain is a solvable problem, mm-hmm. both mental pain and physical pain. Mm-hmm. And the most enjoyable part for me, going back to the anxiety part of it, anxiety is a physiological state. Mm-hmm. It's just a state of being in fight or flight. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of ways of lowering fight or flight. So it turns out anxiety is a solvable problem by addressing the physiology. It is not addressable with talk therapy. Mm. It is not addressed with mind over matter. It is not addressable with self-esteem. Mm. So these are rational efforts to deal with this massive survival response. Yeah. And again, you create a separation separation of your identity with the survival response. Mm-hmm. You get a working relationship with it. Yeah. And then you can, you don't, it, it, instead of fighting it, mm-hmm. which is our inclination, mm-hmm. which makes it stronger, mm-hmm. you separate and you move forward. So 
there's two parts to healing. Okay, so I use a metaphor of a bathtub. Okay. So just picture the drain being anger and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's survival reactions. And then the water coming into the tub are the good things in life. Okay. So if you're using experiences and the good thing to life mm -hmm. to compensate for anxiety and anger, you're not going to fill up the tub because yeah. the drain is wide open. Yeah. It's a big drain. Yep. So what happens is that the, so what the two parts of healing are is that you learn tools to plug the drain, okay. plug the drain, yep. plug the drain. You do it multiple times a day. Yep. I mean, stresses come at us every day. Yep. But you learn to process them in a manner that's very quick and efficient, mm -hmm. not suppressing it, but you process it. Mm -hmm. One of my friends has a saying that you have to feel to heal. <laughs> so you allow yourself to feel the anxiety, bam, you go a different direction, but you don't suppress it. Yeah. So you just learn tools to become very efficient at processing stress. Mm. Then the healing occurs as you move your brain into different circuits that are enjoyable. Yeah. So what happens is that solving all your problems actually doesn't do that. So the healing occurs as you go from stress pathways or stress circuits to pleasure circuits. Mm -hmm. But if you're using pleasure just to compensate for the anxiety, the tub never gets filled up. So once you plug the drain and keep it plugged most of the time, yeah. you can fill up the tub. Mm. So that's why people thrive, because instead of fighting anxiety and anger, yeah. pain, yep. um, you get to do what you want to do. Mm. And so what happens is that the um, as you move into these circuits and nurture them, yep. it's like learning a new language. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to, you're not going to learn French by trying to fix your English. <laughs> it's true. Right? And so remember, the default language for humans is survival and fight or flight. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to create this new life, enjoyable life, by trying to fix the old one. Mm -hmm. So one thing that we do very clearly in our process of healing is we never allow people to discuss their pain. Mm. So no discussion of pain, don't discuss your medical care, no complaining, no malicious gossip, no criticism, no giving unasked for advice. Those all fire up your physiology. Wow. So it's not psychological. Again, if you're on that mindset, mm -hmm. you're going to fire up the physiology. Mm -hmm. Don't watch the news yeah. more than maybe 15 minutes a day. Mm. Don't watch violent TV. Mm. So there's a bunch of things you do to change the input. But if you're loading your input mm -hmm. with lots of stuff like that, guess what? How much your body's fight or flight? Mm -hmm. So then with the nervous system itself is that we know we can decrease the reactivity of it with anti-inflammatory diet exercise, and sleep. Mm. Okay, so then you're working on the nervous system part of it. Then you can also directly lower the physiology from fight or flight to safety. For instance, breath work, yeah. breathing through your nose, um, relaxation techniques, mm. um, humming. Yeah. Humming actually is directly, directly stimulates the vagus nerve, which is anti-inflammatory. So you can directly lower the output, in other words, change the physiology. Mm. You can increase the resiliency of your nervous system you can, again, not avoid the stresses coming in, but you can process them differently. Yeah. That's what dynamic healing is. So, again, the essence of disease is sustained exposure to fight-or-flight chemistry yep. with thoughts being the biggest problem. Yep. And the solution is actually maximizing your time in safety. And it's consistent. So, again, for mm -hmm. me personally, 17 of my symptoms are gone. Mm. I think my record is one woman of 28 different physical symptoms mm. gone. Mm. Um, I had one gentleman who had 28 surgeries in 22 years. Mm -hmm. He's never felt better in his entire life. Mm -hmm. um, because, again, it's the mental pain that tortures us the most. Mm -hmm.
So I have a question though. How do you know though that it's, how do you know what the, you know, like, and I'm trying to not act like a provider, but it's so hard. So I'm just going to be the provider for a minute. And you and I call, you and I are colleagues like Dr. Hanscom, David, like, how do you know when it's something serious and like something that's like a, like what we would say is like needs immediate attention versus it being more of something that is um, maybe multimodal dynamic, right? Versus something that's an emergency. Because I think most people I see, that's what they always think it is, right? It's like, I need to get this taken care of right now. This is emerging. I, you know, this is something serious. But what we're talking about is, and I, I loved how you started, acute to chronic. But even when they're in the chronic stage, they're still fighting. I'm so many people I know, they just keep fighting to the point where they get so worn out. And then, you know, they wonder like what, you know, they get, they get desperate. They get, they get through so, these so, issues. Yeah, I mean, here's the issue is that, um, again, you're trying to lower inflammatory markers. So number one thing is um, I'm incredibly compulsive if somebody comes to me with chronic pain not to assume anything. Mm. So I always do a structural workup. Mm -hmm. Probably 90% of symptoms in your body are from the body's physiology. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, it makes sense. I agree. I mean, if my car sitting on the street, there's no symptoms. Yep. Is until when I turn the car on, yep. which is equivalent to the body's function, yep. the car's function, yep. you don't have symptoms until you turn the car on. Yep. And the human body has 30 trillion cells. Yep. And so it's very complicated. So it's in motion all the time. So it's the symptoms are from that physiology, not the structure. Yep. That being said, I do a complete workup every patient every time. Mm. I don't want to miss cancer, tumor, infection. Yep. Um, so once that's done, yep. unfortunately what happens is I call them obsessive thought patterns. You get this, I call it phantom brain pain. Yeah. The circuit goes, because we've been programmed this way, yep. that there's always something structural, and the answer really is there's really something structural. Then the next phase of it is, is that you have this phantom brain pain that the doctor's missing something, the doctor's missing something. Yeah. So even if I have a complete workup to go from doctor to doctor to doctor, mm -hmm. and what happens, it doesn't matter how many tests you have, yep. No matter how many times I reassure you, that voice will not turn off. Hmm. That's a problem. Yeah. But again, once you understand the problem, there's actually a solution to that also. Hmm. So you can't solve it, but you can work past it. Got it. So then the other thing is that, and by the way, this is also anchored in disbelief. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Why would I? Why would I say that? Yeah. Yeah. Because what happens is, okay, you've tried a thousand things, nothing's worked. Why is David Hanson's process is going to work. Yeah. Well, I don't want you to believe in David Hanscom. I don't want you to believe in this process that I called the DOC journey. Yep. I don't want you to believe in my app. It's not about generating enough belief to heal. Mm -hmm. It's actually digging into your skepticism. Mm -hmm. Because the brain's designed to protect you. The brain's always going to be skeptical. Mm -hmm. And so it's about connecting to what is. And as you connect, then your body starts to heal. Mm -hmm. So I ask people, please don't believe a word I said today. Nothing. You can learn about it, be curious about it, explore it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, I'm another doctor. Yeah. You know, I'm a surgeon even. I mean, why am I going to help you? Yeah. And the answer is I'm not. Mm. The answer is you're going to, I'm going to give you tools mm -hmm. to connect to your own capacity to heal. Mm. And as you get out of your own way, your body will heal. Yeah. We're, we're programmed to heal, but we get in our way. Yep. So it's a different process. You get anchored in what is. And then we also found out that hope is actually anti-inflammatory. Mm. We know social connections, anti-inflammatory. Mm. A sense of purpose, mm. anti-inflammatory. Yep. Um, so sense of control, anti-inflammatory. So those things actually start giving you control, education, et cetera, 
actually start dropping down the inflammatory process, Mm. which causes a physical decrease in your pain. Mm. So it's it's a stepwise interactive dynamic process, but it is incredibly solvable. In fact, the patients of mine that have gotten better, including myself, is that the solution is disturbingly simple. Hmm. So people go into, and the reason why it's a pet peeve of mine, because people go into spine surgery because there's, quote, nothing else to be done. Yeah. Well, operating on a normal spine doesn't sound like a very good idea. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yep. So just because everything else has been tried, why would you do to something, why would you do something that's been proven to be ineffective? Yeah. So people look at spine surgery as the last resort. It is not a resort at all. If there's not a problem, don't fix it. Hmm. So which the tragedy is if you take known documented medical treatments, and by the way, this is up in this has all been in the literature for over, over 30 years, right. it works. Yeah. It's effective. Yep. But as you know and I know, it's not very well covered by insurance. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so let's just tackle that all for a minute, right? So one of the things is the business of, of, of medicine or just the business overall. What are some of the ways that people can get access to that? I mean, do you think it's more through, um, you know, going to conferences or going to workshops? You think it's more about reading books and leading them into that? I mean, I mean, there's a lot of because there's a lot of listeners who probably may be having some persistent pain or chronic pain at this point or low back pain. And they probably want to know, like, what's the next step for me, you know, from listening to this? Well, I mean, here's one of my, hopefully my mission is to bring this, and basically my mission has been just implement what we already know. This is all known data, but we're, mm-hmm. but the data shows that we are not following the data. So unfortunately, there are very few physicians who actually administer these treatments. Yeah, um, Your physical therapy world has a lot more on the ball than this. They really follow the neuroscience. Mm-hmm. So that's why um, I do give talks to physical therapists about enjoying the management of chronic pain yeah. because they can do a good job. Yep. So what I'm going to talk about my process just as a placeholder because lots yep. of people, any clinician that understands these concepts can implement the process. Yeah, absolutely. So I did write a book called Back in Control, yep. A Surgeon's Realm About a Chronic Pain. And it's not a self-help book. It's a framework hmm. to organize your thinking about the components of pain. Yep. So what happens is that once you understand the problem, then you actually find your own solution. So the three parts of healing are number one is awareness. Okay. <clears throat> understand the problem and the nature of the solution. Understand your situation. That's the awareness. The second part, chronic pain is complicated. Mm-hmm. So you have to address every aspect simultaneously. Mm-hmm. It's like fighting a forest fire. Mm-hmm. Everything counts. Mm-hmm. So there's always at least three to five things in a given person that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Then the final thing, which is so critical, since every p- person is incredibly unique, the only person that can solve the problem is actually you. Yeah. So the number one thing that happens for people to heal is they take charge. Mm-hmm. And they'll get better as they, as they go on, but you have to take charge of your care. Yeah. So whether you read my book or like Howard Schumann's book or Dave Schechter's book, there's different books to read. Right. If you connect with it, great. Yep. So then I put together a process called the DOC Journey, Direct Your Own Care Journey. Mm-hmm which is a sequence that takes you from the skepticism to the solutions mm-hmm. to anxiety, awareness, anger. Mm-hmm. So as you go through that sequence, um, again, I've seen over 2,000 people get better. Mm. It's almost 90% self-directed. Wow. So that's how my process evolved, just my own experience, yep. watching people fail, watching people succeed. Mm-hmm. The number one factor that predicts 
Success is actually simply engagement. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't engage, of course, you're not going to heal. So yep. if you're going to learn how to play piano, you have to practice. Yep. So again, Howard Schumann has a course called Unlearn Your Pain. Um, Dr. Shook, Dr. Schechter has a process in Southern California. So there's more and more processes arriving that people can use as resources. And I guess I'll just be rant here a little bit. Yeah. I get so frustrated because it does help to have a doctor who understands the concepts, yep. but also helps to have a physical therapist who understands the concepts. Yeah. So here's the thing with physical therapy, why it's such a critical aspect of this chronic pain problem mm-hmm. is that you spend more time with the patients. Mm-hmm. Not always, I get it. Yep. But also you can create an environment yep. of relaxation and calming people down. Yep. So you can actually, you touch the patient, you talk to them, you get emotion, yep. you educate them. Yep. And then with certain pitches of music you can play, yep. very helpful. And I do give lectures to physical therapists of enjoying the management of chronic pain patients. When I ask, the data shows actually that only one, less than 20% of physicians are comfortable managing chronic pain. Mm. Less than 1% actually enjoy it. Mm. So if you have the wrong diagnosis, mm. if you're treating a, treating a neurological problem with a structural approach, it can't work. Yep. So everybody's frustrated. But once you get the correct diagnosis and treatment paradigm, it's unbelievably rewarding to see somebody go from not only having no hope, but they start thriving at a level that's unbelievable. So, yeah, it's the... um, I mean, again, I quit my surgical practice because of this. And I just... uh, And you you and I are in the same mission. Yep. Just trying to teach more providers these concepts and principles... I mean, let me ask you the question. I mean, yeah. when you at, when you have people in your resources as far as physicians, yep. I know your area with um, Sharna and yep. um, Kevin yep. um, um, really have a lot of resources there. I mean, I'm guessing in your area, you're developing more and more resources to actually help people out. Yeah, we are. And it's been interesting. So being in academics, I've been fortunate to help measure um, things like self-efficacy. So like, right. you know, that's like a huge thing. So we use a thing called the um, Promise. It's a CAT system, which uses a computerized adaptive um, training or testing, which actually helps us understand where the patient's at and how much they believe that they can actually get better. And right. all chronic pain patients, and you know, I'm generalizing because I have data for maybe a thousand patients and it shows that the chronic pain patients have the lowest self-efficacy from right. the, you know, the popu- from the norm of the population from our country. So it's interesting to hear what you're saying about letting people self-manage or learn how to manage that themselves and self-guide. And people be like, oh, I don't know if you know you can do that. And I would say, well, maybe you're not really thinking about it in the way that we are. Maybe you're thinking about it from a disease process and that homeostasis is what you're thinking about versus like allostatic issues, right? I think that, right? right? I think that, again, we're tossing these words around because we're talking as colleagues for a minute. But I think that the, the amazing thing is that we're all saying the same thing. We just may be right. approaching it from a different way. The other thing, too, is being a commissioner for the state of Oregon in the pain commission. You know, we've developed this really great modules looking at just not just uh, physical exercise, but also sleep, your nutrition, right? right? How to talk yep. to um, communicate that. And so there's right. a lots of education, in, as you know, in the state of Oregon. My biggest concern I have is for my profession that still is having a hard time uh, letting go of some of the words that we use. I'm trying to explain and maybe even our body models uh, with, you know, discs that are red um, saying that this is your biggest problem. We still have a lot of um, 
education that needs to be done. And I think people still want to believe that it's more mechanical than it is. And I agree with you. I think 20 to 30% may be mechanical, if that, and that might be generous. This is, it's no more than 10%, yeah. I'm telling you. Yeah, and I agree with you. It, I agree with you. I mean, that's, what, that's what the data says. I mean, yep. for back pain in general, yep. we absolutely know yep. that disc degeneration does not cause back pain. Absolutely. And there's also a thing called the nocebo effect. Yep. And you mentioned this earlier. Absolutely. You, your body is a predictive machine. Yep. And so if you say, well, every time I do this, it's going to hurt, yep. your, brain will actually, your brain will actually create the pain before you even do it. Yep. So I, I'll just give me one example of a gentleman back east who's an incredibly successful businessman, young guy, good-looking guy, healthy, strong, yep. had severe chronic thoracic pain for eight years, hmm. nine years. And so a surgeon told him, well, you have the back of an 80-year-old. Oh, boy. He had normal degeneration. Yeah, exactly. Within six weeks, understanding that, yep. you know, this isn't bad. Yep. I'm not hurting myself by being active. Yep. He went to pain-free. Wow. After nine years, yep. within six weeks, just understanding that, yep. going through some of the basic calming down tools that you and I know well, yep. nine years of his life disappeared because some surgeon said, well, you have the spine of an 80-year-old. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, you'd start guarding. Your brain starts predicting that this is going to hurt. Yep. And guess what? Your brain's very smart. It adapts very quickly. Yep. So the answer is, yes, you absolutely become your disease. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's one of the other reasons why um, my other project is um, putting physical therapists in primary care. So we're actually embedding physical therapists in primary care so we can actually talk with them when they first come in, right, versus waiting. Because, you know, we, we're usually downstream. But now what's happening is by putting a PT upstream and understanding the, 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 the neuroscience and understanding pain, we're able to have that explanation right up front when we're just dealing with it in primary care. And we've seen some huge, huge um, uh, wins. But what we've also seen is decrease in imaging by almost 40 to 50 percent because we're having that discussion with the patient. But we're also right. having it with the provider. Right. And which right. is and they're very open to that. Right. To have that discussion because, you know, they're they're interested in knowing what we know. And again, I think that's because of some of the leaders in pain in Oregon who've already, you know, have, who've led the path. Right. And so it's, it's a nice way for us to follow through. And, you know, my favorite quote on your website is you said there's um, and, and excuse me if I got it wrong. But what I got from it was you've helped thousands of people and or hundreds of people. And it says, you know, I've never been more, that's been the most greatest reward that I've received as a provider, as even as a surgeon. And I just love that when you quoted that. And maybe that's a way we can end. Like, tell me about like the joy that you're having, because I know there's a course on it um, and I know you present it, but what's the joy that you're receiving now as a provider dealing with patients that people would say would be very difficult to treat? So, well, the data shows that the impact of chronic pain on a person's quality of life is equivalent to having terminal cancer. Mm. So as you know, I call it the abyss, no hope, and these lives fall apart. It affects the families, and they're completely lost, and they keep getting bounced around, bounced around, bounced around. So within usually six to 12 weeks, people come out of the hole pretty hard. Mm -hmm. So you take somebody with no hope, mm -hmm. all of a sudden they're going back to work, they're actually getting remarried, their kids are doing better, mm. And if I can do that without surgery, I mean, surgery is no joke. Yeah. I mean, even the simplest operations can have some significant complications. Mm -hmm. And so if I can get you better without the risk and the cost of surgery, I'm pretty excited. Yeah. I had over 120 patients with known structural spinal stenosis, 
leg pain, classic surgical candidates cancel the surgeries because hmm. the pain disappeared. Hmm. And I'm going, what? Because I was not expecting that. Right, right. So going back to your comment about the source of the pain, it actually doesn't matter. Was it a structural problem or not, it doesn't matter. Hmm. So you calm down the nervous system first. You get people in a state of safety. And then if they need surgery, the results are consistently good. Yeah. And a lot of them just skip the surgery completely. So it's knowing what I know about surgery and its potential complications. Mm-hmm. If you can come into my office... Mm-hmm. And not only can I pull you out of the hole, I can do it without the risk and cost of surgery. It's incredibly rewarding. Mm. I agree. I agree. I would say that the work that I've been doing the last 10 years has been the, probably the most rewarding work that I've, I've been part of. And it's so great to meet a colleague like you, um, Dr. Hanscomb. Um, it, is, it is a joy, really, for me to interview you and to hear your thoughts and also to hear um, I would say it's not a program, but I think what it is, is it's a process, right? It's a process, journey, yeah, right? Right, journey. I mean, because <clears throat> I think so many people see it as a program. I don't see that. I see the science no. behind it. And it's like what you're saying is you're bringing it in. And I, and I, you know, you and I both know the science. So it's, it's really great to see the process and the journey that you're allowing people to take and to help change their identity and the way they think and the way they see and the way they feel and also their physiology, which I think is a key component of helping uh, these patients. So I just wanted to also just give, maybe give you a last words if you wanted to uh, maybe share, and then we'll just conclude our time today. Yeah, I, it's hard to say last words because the process is so broad, but um, I just want to address the anxiety issue just for a final second, yep. is that I do think getting anxiety into the right court, being physiological, not psychological, is actually almost a societal human survival issue mm. because when you're anxious and frustrated, you're reacting, you're not thinking clearly. And right now, people are treating each other very badly based on trying to solve anxiety. Mm-hmm. So medicine has got to get this right. You have to get it right. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have a reasonably comfortable life until you actually can put physio- anxiety into the correct physiological category. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, um, I just welcome to you a life that you just cannot imagine is possible. Mm-hmm. So, it, so the mental pain is a bigger problem. It is a very solvable problem. And uh, and again, I'm very excited to talk to you because it's nice talking to like-minded people, number one. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we, of course, we continue to learn from each other. It's, a, it's an evolving process. Yep. But no, your, your part of the world up there in Oregon is really remarkable ahead of the game compared to most parts of the country. So I'm really applauding all your efforts. Um, yeah, you just have a group of people up there that, that are just phenomenal. Yeah. Well, we appreciate that, Dr. Hanscomb. Dave, David, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to George Fox Talks on Apple, Spotify, or whatever you're streaming on. Check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks where we have videos, publications, and more. And we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash George Fox Talks.